All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open up the word of God together this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord's guidance upon our study today. Father, we're thankful that we have this time to reflect upon your word, for we understand that nothing is more important in our lives than to think your thoughts after you, to be reminded continuously of how things are uh, in the world you created rather than in the world that so many people around us wish to create for themselves, that this is your world, your creation that has been Uh, ripped off by Satan, who is currently the god of this age, and therein lies the heart of the conflict. Battle rages around us and will until our Lord returns, and even though there is much that goes on that is horrible and uh, so much that goes on that is just just, um, beyond imagination and the evil that continues in this world, we know that you allow that in your permissive will for a purpose and for a reason, and that someday all will be, all will be uh, resolved and you will execute justice on the unrighteous. And Father, we anticipate that time, but now is the time of grace, the time when we are witnesses of you and your word, and the time for us to uh, grow spiritually and to learn to live in the devil's world on the basis of your truth. Because as our Lord prayed, it is through your truth your word, that we are sanctified. Now we pray that you'd help us to focus and concentrate this morning as we go through this very important passage in Psalm 110, helping us to understand its significance to our thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the timeless problems that has been voiced by human beings is the problem of suffering, the problem of evil, the existence of evil, Those who are hostile to Christianity often think that they have uh, somehow come up with a great argument against a loving and gracious, omniscient God by saying, well, how can you explain the problem of evil? Uh, If your God is so loving, how can he allow for sin and evil and suffering to exist in the world? So if he does, maybe he's not so loving. And if he's omnipotent and he continues to allow all of this, well, maybe he just doesn't have the power uh, to stop it. And they think that they have uh, found some great problem with Christianity, with the Judeo-Christian presentation of an almighty, of an all-knowing, of an all-loving God. Problem is that they have no leg to stand on. And as I've pointed out many times, the best thing to do is say, well, you know, that's an interesting problem. How do you solve the problem of evil? Because they have no answer. They can't even talk about uh, categories of right and wrong and evil and good uh, apart from a presupposition that a holy, righteous God exists and there are absolute standards. And so the scripture gives us answers to this. I think God in his mercy recognizes that this is an inherent problem for human beings down through the ages. So that the very first book that was uh, written, uh, that is in the Bible, is not the book of Genesis. That was written in approximately 1440-something by Moses. But the book of Job. And the theme of the book of Job is how to understand unjust suffering. Job loses his children, loses uh, his homes, his property, his cattle, his camels, his sheep. Job loses his health. 
The only thing that Job doesn't lose is his wife, who really isn't a treasure, because she's the one who says, well, just curse God and die. Lovely woman. How about having some of our nasty little statements recorded for all eternity in the Scripture? But Job was written to help us understand this because as Job finally is wrestling with this problem with his friends and they say, well, Job, the reason you have all these problems is because you sinned. And Job said, but I'm, I'm righteous. And as we see in the first few chapters of Job, as we have the curtain drawn back on the heavenly scene where Satan and the fallen angels are gathered before God, God keeps saying, this is my righteous servant, Job. There, there's nothing wrong found in him. There's nothing wrong in Job. Um, And so Job wrestles with this. As his friends say, it's something you did. It's ultimately your fault. God's just uh, bringing this suffering into your life because you're you're unrighteous. Uh, Job understands it's not. So, But finally he challenges God, and God shows up and says, and gives him a lot of questions, rhetorical questions, to get him to think. And the bottom line is that God is saying, you're never going to be able to understand the answer if I gave it to you. You can't understand all these different dimensions of my creation. And if you can't understand these things, which are much less complex and much less difficult than understanding why I allow evil to exist, uh, if you can't understand the lesser, you'll never understand the greater. So you just have to trust me. The timeless question that is voiced by the psalmist is, How long, O Lord, will you let the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? And what we see is the Bible teaches that there will be a resolution, just as the first book talks about the problem of unjust suffering. What we see in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, as we come to that book, we understand how God resolves the problem of evil and unjust suffering and unrighteousness. And really there are there are three things that that God does in history that brings a resolution to the problem of sin. The first is what he did on the cross. On the cross Jesus Christ died the just for the unjust that he might bear in his own body on the tree our sin, and that by believing in him and him alone, we can have eternal life. It's a grace gift. We don't do anything to earn it, anything to deserve it. Scripture says, He who knew no sin, perfectly innocent, the spotless Lamb of God, he who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. That's the first part of the solution. The second part of the solution happens at the end of the tribulation. It is known as the battle, more accurately, the campaign of Armageddon, where the forces of the world, the kings of the earth, all of the presidents and the princes and the kings and the businessmen, all of the Uh, powers that be are arrayed against God and his Messiah as depicted in Psalm 2. And their, their goal is to destroy God and his Messiah and God will destroy them. That's the second part of the solution. As God then establishes his righteous kingdom on the earth. And then the third and final part of the solution occurs at the end of that thousand-year perfect reign of Christ on the earth when, the, when Satan, who has been uh, incarcerated in the abyss for that thousand years as he is released, he is able to gather to himself an army of malcontents and those who have rejected God and his grace, and they are leading a rebellion against God and against Jesus and they are going to be destroyed with fire and brimstone, and all those who have rejected God and his grace are sent for sent to the lake of fire for eternity. That's the final part. What we're studying in Psalm 110 fits within the understanding of that resolution of the second part. We've been studying in Matthew, and we're taking a few weeks to look at the background to Matthew 22:43 to 45, which is a quotation that reflects upon Psalm 110. Psalm 110 begins with God the Father, Yahweh, saying to 
my Lord, David's Lord, who is God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this is Operation Footstool, and in the last uh, three verses, verses 5 through 7, which we're studying today, we see how God will crush the opposition. The passage we're looking at just focused on the first verse of Psalm 110.1, where David is, I mean, where uh, Jesus is responding after three uh, hostile questions from the Pharisees that sought to entrap him. Uh, he's going to trap them, and he, very, in a very sophisticated manner, uh, uses Psalm 110.1, and he says, if David said this in the psalm where uh, he calls uh, the, the Messiah Lord, uh, in the passage, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies my footstool, Jesus said, if David then calls him Lord, that's the second Lord, how can this Lord, who is superior to David, by virtue of the fact that he calls him my Lord, how is he his son? So we've taken our time to look at this psalm in its entirety. Now, as part of the background, I want to just give you a prophetic framework here, timeline. We are currently in what we call the church age, the age of grace that began on the day of Pentecost in uh, AD 33 and extends until the uh, rapture of the church. All those unbelievers who die during this period go to Hades and at the rapture of the church, which takes place at some unknown time in the future, all believers will be taken to be with the Lord. Those who are dead in Christ will be caught up together with him in the clouds, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up as well. We will be taken to heaven. This is the rapture. There's going to be a short interval there of a transition period before Daniel's 70th week uh, transpires. That's known popularly as the tribulation. The tribulation ends with this battle, this campaign of Armageddon, and it ends, the earth and humanity are saved from themselves and Israel is rescued by the return of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will defeat and destroy the enemies of God, and then there will be great judgment. He will then establish his throne, his throne, on the earth and institute a thousand-year reign on the earth known as the millennium or the millennial kingdom or messianic kingdom. So, we looked at Psalm 2246, and as Jesus quotes this, he is, uh, he is making a claim to be the Messianic King, the Son of David. The Pharisees understand that. And he is also, by quoting Psalm 110, warning them that they will be defeated because they are enemies, are his enemies, and they are therefore enemies of the Messiah, enemies of God, and he is telling them they will be destroyed. The Pharisees would clearly understand all of Psalm 110. When he just quotes the first verse, they understand the rest of it, and they know that they have been uh, overturned in their uh, hostility to Jesus, and that just makes them even more mad. There are three divisions. We've studied the first two. In the first division, we see that it is Yahweh, God the Father. If you look at your English text, the Lord there, when it says, the Lord said to my Lord, that first Lord is in uh, uppercase caps. And so that is always a translation of the name, the personal name of God, Yahweh. Uh, Yahweh will exalt the Messianic king to his right hand, where he will await the Messiah, the Messianic King, sits at the right hand of the Father in a position of passivity, awaiting the defeat of his enemies and the establishment of his kingdom. In the second division, which we studied last time, Yahweh vows to make the Messianic King a priest. That indicates his humanity, because a priest is a go-between. First uh, Timothy chapter 2 says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So the fact that he is a, made a priest indicates his humanity. 
And then the third division, which we're looking at this morning, Yahweh will give the Messianic king a mighty and glorious victory. That's what the promise was. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So this is the focal point here, and we're looking at these last three verses this morning. Now, there's an order of events here. I'm just going to run through these as a way of review and reminder. As there's a uh, timeline, there is the ascension of the Messiah to heaven. That means that he has been on the earth. And the reason that, it can, that this uh, or that this implies is that he's been rejected, that he has come to the earth but been rejected. He ascends to heaven. Uh, he is then, second of all, seated at the right hand of God. And Revelation 3.21 says that he's not seated on his throne, but on my Father's throne. It is not his throne yet. He then, uh, under point three, he asks for a kingdom. That's Psalm 2.8. And the Father says, ask and I will give it to you. So he is requesting that kingdom. The fourth point Eventually, God the Father will give him or grant him that kingdom that's pictured in Daniel 7:13 through 14 as the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days and is given dominion over man. Fifth point, Messiah then returns to the earth and defeats the kings of the earth through the power of Yahweh working in and through him, Psalm 2:9, Revelation 19:19 19, 19 through 21. We then saw in verse 2 that uh, Yahweh says that he will extend the dominion of the Messianic king from Zion. That is ground zero for the establishment of the Messianic kingdom. Zion refers to Jerusalem, and it will spread out from there. Psalm 110.2a says from Zion. Psalm 2.9, Revelation 2.27, these two verses say that it will be a rule of, the, of a rod of iron as he imposes the discipline of God upon the enemies of God. Also, Daniel 7.27. Seventh thing, the Messianic ruler will then establish his righteous rule. It is a rule of a righteous scepter, Hebrews 1.8, in the midst of his enemies, Eighth, the Messianic ruler will then judge the surviving Gentiles. Joel 3, 1 through 3, Matthew 25, 31 to 46, and that's what's referred to also here in Psalm 110. Then uh, we learned last week in Psalm 2, 3 that the Messianic ruler will return with an army of willing volunteers. These are those who have freely made their decision to trust in Jesus as Messiah. It is due to their volition that they are in the heavenly army. They will return with him to conquer his enemies. Tenth, we saw that the Messianic ruler is identified as the begotten one. You won't see that in your English text, but I went through the uh, variant last week and pointed out that that is uh, the more accurate version, that the, uh, that the Masoretes who translated the text were anti-Messianic prophecy, so they changed the vowels in the word so that it would change the messianic significance of the passage. Eleventh, the messianic ruler is then designated a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So that gives you a review, and we are now at Psalm 110, verse 5. Psalm 110, verse 5. Now, we have some interesting things going on here, and this is why I talk so much about the importance of really observing the text of Scripture. Often, uh, if you don't observe the text of Scripture very well, you will misinterpret the text of Scripture, and then you will misapply the text of Scripture. Uh, I believe that the role of the pastor is to take people through what the text says, to help them understand what they're reading and what they are seeing. Uh, in Bible study methods, we talk about the fact that you ought to spend about 80 to 85% of your time in observation, and then you'll only have to spend about maybe 10% of your time in interpretation, understanding what the text means, because if you observe it carefully, the meaning will, will become very apparent. It will fall out very obviously. And then once you understand what it means, what it, what it means to you will become readily apparent and sometimes terribly convicting. We've all experienced that. 
But the problem is, as Howard Hendricks points, pointed out to us many years ago in Bible Study Methods and in his book on uh, studying the, the Bible, he says, he says the problem is most people spend about 1% of their time observing the text. They then spend about 5% of their time uh, interpreting the text, and then they want to spend all their time just talking about what it means to me. We're so self-absorbed. You sit around in many churches and you study the Bible in Sunday school, and the Sunday school teacher is nothing more than a facilitator who says, what does that text mean to you? And Mary, what does that text mean to you? Nobody's ever studied it. Everybody's just thinking uh, right off the top of their head what, what their first thought is, and most of the time it's wrong. You have to think about the Word. I think that if we spend most of our time Understanding what it says, what it means becomes pretty obvious, and God the Holy Spirit takes care of making it clear to us how it should impact our own thinking and our own lives. So I want you to pay attention to this for just a minute. We look at Psalm 110.5, and it says, The Lord is at your right hand. Let me ask you a question. Who's the your? The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. Now, we look at this, and we have, obviously, three people. We have the Lord, who, in this case, refers to Yahweh. The word there is Adonai in the text. It's not uppercase in your, in your text. It is lowercase, and it's not the word Yahweh, but it refers to him. That's why I put that in there for clarification. The Lord is at your right hand. Who is the your? Some people would think, oh, that means me. No, that's not what this is talking about. So I want to point something out in terms of this text. It's not too often we have a rather short psalm. If you get more than six or seven verses, it's hard to put the whole thing on the screen where people can read it. But I want to point some things out to you in terms of in terms of what this passage is saying. First of all, as we look, as we saw here in verse 5, there's going to be a significant shift in the pronoun. It's going to shift from your in the first stanza of verse 5 to he, a third-person singular pronoun. And as we see in this slide that lists verses 5 through 7, we see that it's he at the end of verse 5, he, he, and he in verse 6, and he and he in verse 7. Interesting, this shift. What does that mean? Ah, that's where you get into interpretation. Look at the beginning of the psalm. We look at the beginning of the psalm. We notice in verses 1 through 4 that Yahweh is speaking to a second personage identified as my Lord, someone superior to, um, to David. We have identified that second Lord as the Messianic king or the Messianic ruler. This is talking about the Messiah. So when we look at this, the Lord said to my Lord, and then he says something. So the first Lord is God the Father, and he's speaking to God the Son, and he says, quote, sit at my right hand. But sit is an imperative. It's a second person plural, which and we never say this in English. You look at your kid and you say, stop doing that. What you're really saying is you stop doing that but we never include the you, okay? So when we have two imperatives here, sit and rule, they both imply you. That's why I put them in there and why I put those in bracket. The Lord says to my Lord, you sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. That's another opening statement. And then the statement, and I added these quotation marks to make this clear, because here again he is addressing, God the Father is addressing God the Son, you rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning 
And then here I have uh, given the correct translation, I have begotten you. So the pronoun that we have from verse 1 through verse 4, where he says, you are a priest forever, is a second person singular pronoun. You, 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 your, your, your. But all of a sudden, when you get to the last three verses, it's he, he, he. Now, it's really clear in the first four verses that the person that's being addressed is the second person of the Trinity. For effect and in, for emphasis and to draw our attention to it, the end of the psalm also, uh, also addresses the second person of the Trinity, but addresses him as he, what he will do. The text is difficult to understand apart from that. And so what we see here is that in terms of the general structure, there's a statement, a declarative sentence, and then you have these quotes addressed to the Messiah, one in verse 1, one in verse 2, and then the third in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. And then you have another statement addressed uh, to the second person of of the Trinity. So uh, what this tells us is that in verse 5, there is going to be an important shift. In verse 1, the Lord... God the Father says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. But in verse 5, we have to identify who this Lord is because we have this another situation referring to the right, uh, to the right hand. What we see in the first five, four verses is the beginning of Operation Footstool, where the Messiah is told to sit and wait until the time comes when he will be given his kingdom and his dominion. So he is seated and waiting. Now, then we come to this next verse, verse 5. The Lord, and I've identified this to let you know what it means. That's not the, trans, the, the, the Hebrew. The Hebrew here is Adonai, but it's referring not to, not to the... Um, uh, not to the Son, but it's referring to the Father. It's referring to Yahweh. Um, it takes us back. We have to understand the contrast that's taking place here between verse 5 and verse 1, where in verse 1, Yahweh says to the Messianic King, to sit at my, you sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So in verse 1, the Messiah is at Yahweh's right hand. But in verse 5, Yahweh, called Adonai, I'll tell you why in just a minute, Yahweh is at the Messiah's right hand. So there's a shift in scene that takes place here, and that's very important. So I tried to represent this graphically. In verse 1, we have the Father sitting on the Father's throne, and according to Revelation 3.21, the messianic ruler, the son, is seated at the father's right hand. Then what we have in verse 5 is a shift in scene to the return of the Messiah to the earth to conquer his enemies, and he is aided, empowered by the father. Because remember in verse 1, the father, the Lord, says to my Lord, I will make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh is saying, I'm the one who's going to defeat them. I'm the one who's going to conquer them. I'm the one who's going to make that possible through you because the Father works through the Son. So we have this shift that is taking place. Psalm 110.5 goes, emphasizes the fact that it is Yahweh who is the one who empowers and enables the Messiah to defeat his enemies. It is Yahweh and that is at the right hand of the Messianic King. Now, the reason I say that is, first of all, it must refer to Yahweh, God the Father, because the theme of the psalm is that Yahweh defeats the Messianic King's enemies. It's not the Messianic King that's going to defeat his enemies. So if you take Adonai in verse 5, saying that Adonai is at Yahweh's right hand, 
then you're going to lose the significance of what is being said here. It fits the context best to understand this. Second, the spelling of the word Adonai here is different from the spelling in verse 1, and it indicates that this too is a reference to Yahweh God the Father. Remember in among Jews, they never read the proper name of God as, as Yahweh. Whenever they see those consonants, Y-H-W-H, written in the text, underneath it are the vowel points for Adonai, and they refuse to utter the name of God out of respect, and instead they will always read Adonai instead of the proper name of God. But here Adonai is used to refer to God as it is many times in the Old Testament. Now, what we see here, and something that is very important, is the very close relationship between the Father and the Son. We see the picture that it is the Father who said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then when the king is sent forth, to take uh, his dominion, it is Yahweh who goes with him to empower him. The executing agent of the conquest is the son, but the power, the ultimate authority, comes from God the Father. But remember, as the divine second person of the Trinity, the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. This takes us to important passages in the scriptures, such as John 14, 10, and 11, where Jesus said to his disciples, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Now, this we've studied before. It's a word that you're probably not that all that familiar with. It's a word, Latin or Greek word called perichoresis. Perichoresis means that that in effect that what is attributed to one member of the Trinity is true of all members of the Trinity. This is why Jesus says, I and the Father are one. In John chapter 10, verse 30, I and my Father are one. We are a unity. So what the Father thinks, the Son thinks. What the Father is, the Son is, and the Holy Spirit is. And so there are times when the text is a little ambiguous because all three members of the Trinity are present and active. So when we read in Psalm 110, verse 5, that the Lord is at your right hand, and we think about the relationship of the Father and the Son as the Son returns in conquest, we recognize that both the Father and the Holy Spirit are present because of the unity of the Trinity. So we see also in Scripture, this emphasis that the person that the Lord being at the right hand is is as we saw in the first verse when God the Father says to the Son, "Sit at my right hand." It's a position of privilege and it is a position of respect and a position of honor. But here it takes on a different meaning. It's the position of aid. It's the position of empowerment. We see this in Psalms like Psalm sixteen eight where David says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Being at David's right hand is the position to empower and strengthen David against his enemies. So when the uh, Lord says, I am at your right hand and God the Father is at the right hand of the Son when he comes, it is that position to aid and strengthen against his enemies. Psalm 121, verse 5 says, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. He is the one who protects. He keeps you. And he is the one who uh, provides for you and gives you shade from the heat of the sun. He is the one who is at your right hand. So this phrase, the Lord, is talking about Yahweh, God the Father, is at your right hand. It's addressing the Son. But then there's a break in action. And, and this is a literary device to shift our attention and to emphasize something. Because from this point on, uh, the, the writer of the psalm is going to have uh, six six third-person singular pronouns. He hasn't used a he yet. 
All of a sudden, now he says, he, 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 he. Well, who's the he? Well, that's the ambiguity that I'm talking about here. It's not really clear. Is this the father or is this the son? Well, it could be either, but it's both. It's not talking about they. It is he, the son, that is going to execute this, but it is he, the father, who is the one who is in him and who empowers him to defeat his enemy so that the text is clear again and again that it is God who is the one who is destroying uh, destroying his enemies. Now, when we look at this second line, which is the first of these six statements, we see that this summarizes what's going to take place at the second coming of Christ in the campaign of Armageddon. The first thing it mentions is he, that is the messianic king, shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. The word there is machatz, which means to smash, to shatter, to utterly destroy their power, to thoroughly wipe out their, their kingdoms. They will be smashed completely by the power of God the Son when he returns to the earth. And we know from passages that, other passages, that this is the meaning of the fact that he will rule with this rod of iron. The word there that is translated um, execute is the word that is used in Judges 5.26 in that episode that's extremely violent where uh, Sisera, who's the general uh, of Jabin, the king of Hatzor, who has led his chariot forces against the forces of Deborah and Barak, and they have defeated him, and Sisera has fled the scene, and he has worn out from the journey, from the battle, and he seeks aid from someone he thinks will be an ally in the tent of uh, Jael, and she says, come in, I'll feed you, take a nap, rest, and he, she, he goes to sleep, and she grabs a tent peg, and she sneaks up on him while he is sleeping, and the text says that she pounded Sisera. She pierced his head. She split. That's the word makats. She just pulverized his head and struck it through his temple. It's very graphic. You see, the language that is used here in Psalm 110 is graphic language. War is violent. War is destructive. War is bloody. War is horrible. That's the language the text used, and this is what Christ will do when he, when he returns. The text says that, that he will smash kings in the day of his wrath. This is another important term. When you go into the book of Revelation, there, is, there are several significant uses of the term wrath. We have the use of the term wrath of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 6, which is early in the text or in, in the tribulation. Revelation 14, as we're approaching the end game of the campaign of Armageddon where it is about to begin, and we are getting sort of a foreshadowing of that. We're told in this very uh, graphic picture that is described in the heavens that an angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathers the vine of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. What does that remind you of? It ought to remind you of Julia Ward Howe's uh, apostate hymn, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Now, as a good Southerner, I don't like the Battle Hymn of the Republic, but that's not why I have this opinion. I have this opinion because of her total misinterpretation and misapplication of revelation to the American uh, war between the states. And she uses this imagery of the, uh, of the wine press and the wrath of God and all this to apply it very wrongly to the American war between the states. Never sing hymns that have bad theology. By the way, she went on, she was a great pacifist after the war and she was the first person to come up with, uh, the idea of celebrating Mother's Day. And it was all based on pure pacifism, anti-war theology. 
I've always had a problem with Mother's Day since I learned that. So, it's this imagery of the wine press, the, the grape where the grapes of wrath are stored in her language of the hymn. Revelation 16:19. Now the great city was divided into three parts. This is Babylon that is about to be destroyed. And the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. This is the wrath of God the Father. Revelation 19:15 says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. That's that smashing of the enemies. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. So treading out where the grapes of wrath are stored in the language of the Battle Hymn of the Republic is taking language that specifically and uniquely fits the end of the tribulation and the uh, campaign of Armageddon and applies it to some trivial event in human history. reason I say it's trivial is because the Bible in at least three places indicates that what happens during the end of the tribulation is a once-in-history event, an event that has never happened before. It's unlike anything that has ever happened. So to take anything that describes that end event and apply it to some some trivial event by comparison, is really does injustice to the Word of God and desensitizes people to the uniqueness of the Word of God. So in Psalm 110.5 we read, The Lord is at your right hand, at the right hand of the Messianic King, and then it says, He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. Psalm 2.2 talks about the kings of the earth coming. Psalm uh, Revelation 6.16 which occurs earlier in the tribulation period, about a year and a half or two years into it, we're told that the kings of the earth in Revelation 6.15 say to the mountains and the rocks as they are being pulverized in what appears to be some sort of asteroid shower, they are saying, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And here we have this picture that runs through the whole tribulation period is that that the human leaders, the, the kings, the princes of power, the princes of industry, these are the ones who are shaking their fists. They know that the suffering they're enduring during that seven-year period is from, is from God and from Jesus Christ, and they're shaking their fists at him and, 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 and as they resist him and as they showing their, their hatred of him. And uh, they're resisting the wrath of the Lamb. This is why Jesus needs to subdue them with a rod of iron. Here, how this this is how this is pictured in Zechariah 14. Now, you ought to read through the whole chapter of Zechariah 14. It describes what happens around Jerusalem at the close of the campaign of Armageddon. But I'll just pick out the I just picked out these three verses. Verse 3, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. It's Yahweh who will fight against those nations. And again, this, this would include the Father and the Son. They go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in verse 9, we're told, and Yahweh shall be king. Notice it's the second person who becomes king, but he's referred to as Yahweh here. And Yahweh shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one. Now that makes a lot more sense when we look at it in light of uh, the Gospel of John where Jesus says the Father and I are one. The Lord is one and his name one. And then in verse 12, And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. I would imagine how Lindsay probably depicted that as some sort of nuclear event, and that's just reading a lot into the text. God can make that happen without a nuclear bomb going off because the armies of the saints are there. Israel has got to be preserved. This is not going to make a radioactive uh, hole in the ground 
and the land that God is now bringing the Jews back to. So this is just talking about a divine judgment where the enemies of God are virtually vaporized and incinerated. If you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, you have this great scene at the end where all of the Nazis and the bad guys are there and they open up and they look at the Ark of the Covenant and the flesh just melts off their their bones and their eyeballs pop out and it's very graphic. That's what is being described here. This is what will happen at the Lord's return. Now in verse 6 says three things. He will judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. Actually, the implication here is that he is going to fill the valleys with dead bodies. The death and destruction at the conclusion of the campaign of Armageddon is that Israel is strewn. The valleys around Jerusalem, those of you who've been there, you can picture all those valleys because Israel is very hilly. They will be filled with the corpses of the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet. And then third, he will execute. That's that word machatz again. He will smash the heads. But it's a singular in the Hebrew. He will smash the head of many countries, which is, I believe, a a reference to the Antichrist. So uh, as we look at this, it, it, it also remind us, for those of you who remember the time we spent going through Hannah's psalm of praise in 1 Samuel chapter 2, that, that God gave her the insight into the fact that her son Samuel would be born and that he would have a significant role to play in bringing about uh, a king for Israel and the ultimate king who is the Messiah. And at the end of that psalm, she says, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. She is prophesying about what will happen at the end of the battle of the tri- at the, uh, at the uh, battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his... What's the Hebrew word for anointed? He will exalt the horn of his Messiah. So the first thing that's said here is he will judge among the nations. This is what happens uh, to the surviving Gentiles. It's called the sheep and the goat judgment that occurs at the end of the tribulation described in Joel 3, 1 through 3 and Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Joel 3, 1 and 2 says, For behold, in those days and at that time, at the end of the tribulation, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, when I restore the, the, the saved Jews at the end of the tribulation, bring them back to the promised land, I will also gather all the nations, that is, the Gentiles, the goyim, the Gentiles, not na- not representative as nations, but as individual Gentiles. I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, the Kidron Valley below Jerusalem, and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people. One of the aspects of judgment is how they treat Israel. On account of my people, my heritage or my inheritance, Israel, my possession, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, they will be judged for that. Then in the second line, he says, he shall fill the places with the dead bodies. The campaign of Armageddon will be uh, just beyond any battle that has ever happened on the face of the earth. Uh, Ezekiel 39.12 says that it will take seven months to bury all of the corpses left over from the battle of Armageddon. Revelation 14.20 says that... that, um, uh, it depicts the, the violence, the bloodshed is so great that the blood will go up to the height of a horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs all around Jerusalem. Psalm 110.6, he says, He shall execute the heads, literally the head, of many countries. This is the death of the uh, Antichrist. As the Lord comes back, we're told in Revelation 19.19, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, the beast is the Antichrist, the kings of the earth, those who follow him, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. That's the Lord Jesus Christ and the volunteers of Psalm 110.3 that come with him. 
Revelation 19.20, be there. So, uh, Revelation 19.20, then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Other passages say in Isaiah 14 that he is killed. So the uh, Antichrist is killed. He's brought back to life, so he's not going in his mortal body. And then either he's judged and sent directly to the lake of fire then, or this is just telescoped the events, and he will be sentenced to the lake of fire at the same time everyone else is at the great white throne judgment. And in conclusion, in verse 7, we're given a very anthropomorphic view of, of the Messiah. At the conclusion, there is a time of refreshment, a time of rest. Uh, he shall drink of the brook by the wayside. It's a very human look at the Messiah. He is taking refreshment. He is resting. Therefore, he shall lift up his head. And this is a picture of what the of how the um, millennial kingdom is pictured as a time of rest, a time of refreshment. And uh, it is depicted in Isaiah 35, 6, and 7, Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing for waters. That's the resting by the waters. The waters are being refreshed by the waters, drinking by the brook. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. And the habitations of jackals where each lay there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And one of the last pictures that we see of, of the millennial kingdom has to do with water. And the free offer of water, which is a depiction of the free offer of God's grace to everyone. And the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, whoever desires to be saved, whoever desires, that's volition, the volunteer army that comes with the Messiah. Whoever desires, whoever wills, let him take the water of life freely. There is no cost to salvation. No one has to work for it. It is a free gift. This is one of the great verses of God's grace, that the water of life is offered at no charge. There's no condition it is just accepted freely by faith alone in Christ alone, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Uh, Father, uh, we're thankful for this opportunity to uh, be here this morning to reflect upon your word and to reflect upon uh, the tremendously powerful image here of how you will bring to resolution the problem of evil, the problem of sin, the problem of injustice, that it is not going to be done through uh, some sort of political or economic system of social justice. It will only come about when the Lord Jesus Christ, the only perfect ruler there it ever has been or will be, who will bring resolution at the end of the tribulation and establish his kingdom with a perfect government and a perfect ruler. Father, we pray that if there's anyone who's listening to this message that has never trusted Christ as Savior, that they would take this opportunity to do so, that the offer is a free offer, like the offer of the water of life, given freely with no strings attached. The instant we accept it by trusting in Christ as Savior, at that instant, we have eternal life, which can never be taken from us. And we pray that any who's listening who've never trusted in Christ would realize that that is the only hope of our salvation, that when we die and we stand uh, before the gates of heaven and we're asked, why should we be allowed in, that our only answer would be, because I trusted in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. And we pray that you would make that clear to every one of us. In Christ's name, amen.